0: All right, let's pray Lord, we thank you for your love for children all the children of the world lord we we thank you that that song reminds us there's no one like you you're unique and you're the unique savior and you have a unique friendship with little children we thank you for that even as we've seen a baptism today bless the children as they go to friends of jesus lord instruct them encourage them may they learn to love you and love each other as you call us to and lord may, may we who remain here in the sanctuary hearing your word uh, speak to us encourage us challenge us that we might be disciples who, who who know you and love you and follow you and serve you in this world pray for Vic, our, our, our brother as he comes in to, to bring the word of god to the people of god we'll give you thanks in jesus name amen amen real introduction he's been here before i'm just going to turn him loose he is a. Uh, he has a new job. He'll probably talk about his new job a little bit. Uh, he's now helping out mission. But he's a member of our congregation and a father and, and all that. And um, he's under care of our presbyteries and our lamp program. And uh, he's gonna, we're in a series, and he's going to bring to us Ecclesiastes this morning. So hear God's word from Brother Vic, Vic King.
1: Morning, church. So, uh, yeah, so we're tackling Ecclesiastes this morning. For a lot of Christians, maybe for you... Uh, Ecclesiastes is awkward. It's uh, I, maybe you've been a Christian for a while, and um, you know there are still whole books of the Bible that you that you haven't really got the hang of. You're not sure what to do with. Um, you know, maybe you have a grasp of the basics of the Bible, but um, you know the big story, but you're not sure where these books fit into the big story. So in this series, we've been going through all the wisdom books, um, and I, I think if we took a poll. Maybe, you know, the top Bible books for awkwardness would be Ecclesiastes and Revelation. Um, Revelation. Reading Revelation, it's easy to get the big idea, right? Jesus comes back and makes everything right, you know? But the devil is in the details, I mean, literally, in, in the case of Revelation. Uh, but Ecclesi- Ecclesiastes is, uh, is just a downer, right? It's, it's like the skeleton at the feast. If the books of the Bible uh, were um, Winnie the Pooh characters, Ecclesiastes would be Eeyore, right? And so, if those of you, for those of you who are Eeyores, you love it, right? It's great, but the Pooh Bears and the Piglets and the Owls, and especially the Rabbits and the Tiggers, like, you don't know what to do with it. You can tell what I've been reading with my girls, right? Uh, so we're going to dive in. Uh, we, we're going to see um, how Ecclesiastes fits into, into the big storyline of the Bible, you know, creation, fall, redemption, new creation, um, and how Ecclesiastes, even Ecclesiastes, points to Jesus. Um, So let me give you a little background on the book before we jump into the passage that that I've sort of chosen as a representative passage, which is Ecclesiastes chapter 2. Who wrote Ecclesiastes? Uh, It was probably written by Solomon, uh, third king of Israel, son of David. I say probably because we're not totally sure. Uh, The author only identifies himself as the, the, the preacher or the teacher, Koholeth, whatever that means. Based on the content of the book, uh, and especially based on chapter 2 that we'll look at today, I think it's reasonable to assume that Solomon wrote it. Uh, so he calls himself the preacher, and he's out to burst your bubble. You know, whatever it is that's your thing, he's, he's been there and he's done that, and, and, it, and it didn't deliver, it didn't satisfy. Why is Ecclesiastes in the Bible? I, I, it's possible that Ecclesiastes exists to keep us from misinterpreting the book of Proverbs, because we, t- we tend to take Proverbs like simple math sums. Math sums. I mean, they're, s- they're so like, short and pithy and like, memorable. Uh, like the famous one in Proverbs 22, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. So we think, hmm, child plus good training equals good child, right? <laughs> and then if that doesn't happen, we're confused or, or we get mad at God. Right? Like he's not holding up his end of the bargain. But the Proverbs aren't promises. Sometimes they describe the, the, the way things ought to go. Sometimes they describe the way things usually go. Uh, Ecclesiastes highlights the way things fall apart. The realities of living uh, in a fallen world. L- like in cha- chapter 8, um, is sort of boils this down to the essence, right? Solomon is complaining. He says, There is a vanity that takes place on earth, that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and there are wicked people according to whom, it happens, uh, to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. He's saying plenty of times the good die young, and the wicked live to a ripe old age. And that stinks. Uh, but in a fallen world, don't just expect to plug the Proverbs into your life and get instant or automatic results. Ecclesiastes is like um, mouthwash for the soul. It, sh- it shows you where your, where your spiritual ulcers are. There's also this phrase that comes up again and again in Ecclesiastes, um, under the sun, right? Under the sun, under the sun. If you've read the book, you probably noticed that phrase. Uh, it's kind of the interpretive key to Ecclesiastes. Uh, when, he, when he talks about the futility of life under the sun, he's talking about a life lived apart from God. So uh, one, one commentator um, put it this way, he's defending the life of faith in a generous God by pointing to the grimness of the alternative, he's talking about walking through life w- w- with your cap pulled down low, right, looking at your sneakers. He's talking about the vanity, the meaninglessness of a uh, of a you know rose tinted glasses, self confident, godless life. Uh, and he's saying that that never never uh, to t- life that never looks up is meaningless. We need a new horizon. C.S. Lewis has this great line uh, in one of his books that, that could almost be the subtitle of Ecclesiastes. He says, aim at heaven and get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and get neither. And Ecclesiastes shows us just that. that when we aim at earth, we end up with nothing. What good is it right, if we get in the whole world uh, but lose, lose our souls? We need a new horizon. Much of the cheerfulness... Uh, much of the cheerfulness in this world is superficial and shallow. And much of the deep thinking is melancholy. Uh, but but uh, this great Hebrew philosopher calls us to, to deep joy, to profound joy, joy which thinks deeply. Uh, Solomon calls us to meditation, but meditation uh, that doesn't despair. So that's the, that's the big picture of Ecclesiastes. all right. And in chapter 2, it's all about the search for happiness. Happiness, joy... Everyone wants to be happy, right? Uh, Blaise Pascal um, put put this in a really interesting way. He said, um, All men seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend to this end. The cause of some going to war and of others avoiding it is the same desire in both, attended with different views. Um, Some, uh, the will never takes the least step but to this object. This is the motive of every man, even of those who hang themselves. That's interesting. Think about it. Like some people surround themselves with people uh, because they think it'll make them happy, while others try to avoid everyone for the same reason. Um, Some people try to live forever. And some people try to die for the same reason. Right? Um, They think it'll make them happy. And and in a way, this is one of our biggest problems, because uh, all too often what we think will make us happy doesn't. And, and uh, in Ecclesiastes, Solomon pushes it, he, he pushes it even further. You know, he, he would probably say that true happiness might be the most elusive thing in the world. So to show us just how elusive it is, in chapter 2, he takes us for a tour of the three ways that most people try to find happiness, okay? Three ways, he says, and I've tried them all, right? They didn't deliver. Each one is an epic fail. You just don't want to admit it. So what are the three ways? They are pleasure and wisdom. And work, pleasure, wisdom, and work—good things. Um, so we're going to follow Solomon on a on a tour through his trophy hall, which which he says is ends up saying is actually more like a like a musty cave, right? And then uh, we'll follow this little thread that he leaves us at the end, um, you know, out of the cave and and into the light. All right, pleasure. Look at the first paragraph of Ecclesiastes. This is Ecclesiastes chapter two. I said in my heart. Come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself, but behold, this also was vanity. Okay, says so Solomon, I'm going to be a hedonist, right? I'm going to chase pleasure full time, but it fails. Um, I I uh, I said of laughter, it is mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine. My heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. So he says, I tried wine, right? And I even kept my wits about me while doing it. Like I, wouldn't, I wasn't looking to get drunk, but it failed to deliver. The next verse, I made great works. Um, I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. Look at this, he says, you know, I built, I built a mansion, I built an estate, a place that would make Shaquille O'Neal's house look, look like a dump. I've got orchards and gardens and pools, and it didn't satisfy. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I also had great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines that delighted the children of man. He's got slaves. So that's not good. But his point is to underscore the scale of his wealth, right? Uh, if you were around, he'd be saying, you know, I've got butlers and cooks and gardeners. I've got indie rock bands that I pay just to sit around waiting for me to tell them what to play. Uh, and and I've, got, I've got more gold in my bathroom than I've got porcelain. And it didn't satisfy Oh, and, and last of all, I've, I've got women, Solomon says. Uh, you know, if, if you thought rappers boasted about women, they've got nothing on me. You know, I've got hundreds of concubines, beautiful women, just sitting around waiting for me to call on them for whatever I want. And even that failed to satisfy. Uh, speaking of rappers, Kanye West, who's famous for the occasional ridiculous statement, actually had something really wise to say uh, uh, on this topic. He said, uh, so many people talk about their investments or how much money they have, but there's so many rich people who spend a lot of that trying to buy a piece of happiness. And, and, and he would know, Kanye West has a ton of money, but he'll be the first to tell you, you can buy all the pleasure you want, but you can't buy happiness. Now, if we're talking about pleasure, we've got to recognize that God made pleasure. There's a popular notion that pleasure is inherently sinful. Like, think about... Um, the adjectives that restaurants use to describe desserts right especially chocolate ones you know tempting seductively sweet sinfully delicious if it feels good it must be a sin right no the most obvious example of this and, and the one that probably comes to mind for most people when, when they hear pleasure most grown-ups at least is, is sex you know and Christians always haven't always done a good job of remembering and teaching that God made sex good often the unspoken message uh, that accompanies church teaching on sex, especially, you know, unfortunately to youth, is, is something like this. You know, sex is dirty, nasty, mean, and vile, so save it for the one you love. <laughs> and, and, of course, like, the Bible has, met, has plenty of warnings about sex, but they're warnings about misuses, and, and they're accompanied by affirmations of married sex that are, that are bold, uh, like, like Song of Solomon that Bruce preached on last week. Or that passage, my favorite, is that passage in Proverbs 5. Bruce read part of it, but he, le- he left out the, the spiciest bits. So check that out later. If, if you want to see, see a, a strong warning about the misuses of sex, right alongside an incredibly frank celebration of sex in its right place. So here's the big question, right? If God created pleasure good, why isn't it that satisfying? There's this place in, um, in C.S. Lewis's book, The Screwtape Letters, where the, the senior tempter says to the junior tempter... Okay, so this is a fictitious book of letters uh, from, from a demon's point of view. Okay, from, you know, from an elder demon to a, a younger demon. So the, so the enemy in this quote is, is God, and our Father is Satan. Remember that. The demon says, Never forget that when we are dealing with any pleasure in its healthy and normal and satisfying form, we are, in a sense, on the enemy's ground. I know we have won many a soul through pleasure. All the same, it is his intention, not ours. He made the pleasures. All our research so far has not enabled us to produce one. All we can do is encourage the humans to take the pleasures which our enemy has produced at times, or in ways, or in degrees, which he has forbidden. An ever-increasing craving for an ever-diminishing pleasure is the formula. To get a man's soul and give him nothing in return, that's what really gladdens our Father's heart. So that's that's sort of the, the demonic perspective on pleasure, right? Lewis is saying God made pleasure... But instead of receiving it from Him as a gift, we take it and make it into a substitute God. And we we take it in times and in ways and in degrees that God never intended it for. We try to squeeze all the juice that we can out of it, but in the end, all we're tasting is the bitter rind. And our craving gets bigger and bigger, and the returns get smaller and smaller. Is this a familiar feeling? Do you see how pleasure, even honestly, the best earthly pleasures, like rich desserts, like... Like um like the intimacy with your spouse, fail to satisfy. Chasing after pleasure just doesn't cut it, it doesn't deliver happiness. Making a gift into a God sours the gift every time. So that's pleasure. Now wisdom. Next verse. So I turn to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. Then I saw that there was more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in, the, in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. So he's considering wisdom and madness. He says it's like the difference between sight and blindness. And, and who wouldn't, given the choice, who wouldn't choose sight over blindness? In plenty of other places in Ecclesiastes, Solomon exalts, exalts wisdom over foolishness, but it only goes so far. Check this next part out. And yet I perceived that the same event happens to all of them. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. Here's the catch, he says. We're all going to die. <laughs> it's, like, it's like we're all blind and seeing alike, floating down a river and then over the edge of the waterfalls. You know, it, it, What's the benefit of sight? All it does is confirm that, yep, We're headed for the falls, right? It it increases vexation. Look, Look back at the text, the next part. For of the wise, as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come all will have been long forgotten how the wise dies just like the fool. So I hated life, because what is done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is vanity and a striving after wind. So if all that's not depressing enough, Nobody's going to remember you. Uh, there's, there's no enduring remembrance, he says. And he's right. Think about it. Okay, how much do you know about your parents? A lot, right? Uh, some people fill books with stories about their parents, <laughs> good and bad. Now, how much do you know about your grandparents? Uh, you know, maybe a fair amount, but not near as much as you know about your parents, right? How about your great-grandparents? Maybe, just maybe, you know, you, you, know, you knew them while they were alive, um, but besides that you mainly know what your parents and grandparents told you about them. Okay? Now great-great-grandparents, do you even know their names? Unless you're some, you know, like genealogy uh, nut, you know, what you know about them probably wouldn't fill a single page. No enduring remembrance. Now apply this depressing truth to yourself. (laughs) Your kids, if you have any, will know you very well. Your, Your grandchildren Will know you as much as your kids tell them about you or, or bring you to see them or bring them to visit you, whatever. Your great grandchildren, you know, maybe you'll live to see them, some of them. And your great great grandchildren might not even know your name, let alone whether you were wise or foolish, right? No enduring remembrance. So, Solomon says, wisdom's great and all, <laughs> but, but it probably won't make you happy. Uh, what's wrong with godly wisdom? Nothing. You know, it's. it's it's, it's very helpful, and, and I'm sure Stan will get into that in Proverbs. But remember what he's talking about here. He's talking about chasing wisdom, about making being wise your life goal uh, and your whole measure of purpose or happiness. If being wise means that much to you, then you'll be crushed when you consider that you're going to die, you know, just like the idiots. And two or three generations later, you know, no, one, no one's going to remember anything about you. How do you know if wisdom is your god? Uh, how do you know if you're looking to wisdom for more than it can deliver? Um, maybe your book budget rivals your grocery budget, right? Or, or maybe, maybe you never want to be taken in, you know, or or, or or duped. So you're always a little cynical. Cynicism, by the way, is, isn't true wisdom. It's it's self protectiveness. Masquerading as wisdom, um, or maybe you have a doggy commitment to the truth, right? That 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 leaves you feeling embattled everywhere you go. Uh, like everyone's, everyone's against you. These are some of the varieties, right, of, of, of wisdom idolatry. And I struggle to keep all three of these in their place, you know, pleasure and wisdom and work, but wisdom is probably my biggest problem. I, I, um, I get around the book budget barrier by collecting free books, okay? And it's, I, don't even, I don't know if I'm even capable of walking by a table of free books without, you know, without leaving with a few of them. Um, and it came to a head earlier this summer, when I, I brought some boxes of books home from my old job, and, uh, and Joanna, my wife, confronted me. Uh, she was like, you know, why do you want to keep these books? And, and I said something like, oh, I might, I might need them someday. They're my favorites from my old job. Uh, and she was like, where are we going to put them? Like, we've got boxes and boxes of books in our basement that you haven't touched since we moved here. And... <laughs> So uh, we worked it out, you know, that I could keep, I could keep uh, as many books as I gave away. You know, so as long as I gave away an equivalent amount uh, of the books from our basement, you know, I, I could keep some of the incoming ones. But what's behind that book obsession? Like, for me, at least part of it is that deep down, I'm hoping that I, if I could just collect, you know, the best books, read the right books, learn the right strategies or perspectives, then life would, life would fall into place, right? I'm thinking maybe the key to a happy life or a productive life or a good life it's just a book or two away. And Solomon says, it isn't. Trust me, I tried it. At the end of Ecclesiastes, he, he writes, of making many books, there is no end, and much study is a weariness to the flesh. That, that needs to be my life verse. Like, I need to memorize that one. So, so, so on to work. Okay, so we got pleasure, and we got wisdom, and now work. What happens when we chase after work? Verse 18. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. Yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun, because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. Do you hear Solomon's complaint? One guy, right, who's worked hard must leave it all to the next guy who doesn't even know how to handle it. I'm sure this thought has passed through the mind of every outgoing U.S. president, right? And, and, and no, no less for Solomon, right? I mean, he was a king par excellence, if, if you've ever had to hand over a, a, a favorite project right, to, a, to a colleague or, or even an unfinished dinner recipe to a family member, you know what he's talking about. Uh, but he, he, takes it, he takes it further. Verse 22 What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow, and his work is a vexation. Even in the night, his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. Solomon's saying, I'm working my butt off, and it, it's going okay, but it's frustrating, and I can never quite get it out of my head. Right? I, I lie awake on my bed at night thinking about it. Been there. Is that you? John, uh, John D. Rockefeller, if you adjust for inflation, was probably the wealthiest man on earth since Solomon. And When he died in 1937, he was worth what today would be uh, $323 billion. Someone asked him towards the end of his life, uh, how much money was enough? And he said, "Just a little bit more." Do you hear the echo of Screw Tape there? An ever increasing craving for an ever diminishing return, an ever diminishing pleasure. That's the formula. The same thing that can happen with pleasure and wisdom can happen with work. A good thing can become a god. And just like with pleasure and wisdom, we have to remember that God made work good. You know that, right? Some some people have have the have the the notion that the reason we have work is because of sin—that uh, was actually, I mean, that was that was the Greek notion. Uh, but in the garden, before sin entered the picture, God gave Adam and Eve a job description: fill the earth, multiply, uh, fill the earth, and subdue it. That's that's why, they, you know, they were to cultivate the garden and 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 raise a family, and that's why work done so done well can can be so fulfilling, but it can also be addictive and frustrating because since the fall work is also cursed. God's judgment on Adam in Genesis 3 was, By the sweat of your brow you shall eat bread. Thorns and thistles will be your lot. In other words, the ground will resist you. you know, because of, because of sin, the world will resist your efforts to cultivate it. And, and your work will now be frustrating in some measure or degree. Last point on work, it fails to deliver because it doesn't last. Right? Just like wise people, who are usually forgotten in the end, most of our work, will not last. Uh, so my, my parents are visiting here today. Hi, Mom. Uh, and uh, my, my dad went to high school with a guy named Roland Weaver. And after graduation, this guy Roland uh, went straight into masonry, and he did really well at it. Like, he had brickwork featured in uh, Better Homes and Gardens. And pretty soon, he was a workaholic. I mean, he was working all the time, but it was also all he could think about. And then one night, he had a dream, well, a nightmare. Uh, there was an earthquake. And he watched as one by one, each of his brick masterpieces toppled to the ground. They returned to dust. And, and when he woke up, he realized, somewhat, someday, it's all going to return to dust. And what's worse, so will I. Um, and eventually he sold his business and became a pastor. And I'm, I'm not pulling Jesus' juke there. I'll talk about that in a second. But he, so, he's, so he's somewhere out in the middle now, uh, you know, preparing people for eternity. He realized, Roland Weaver realized, what many people never do, that work done for yourself doesn't last. He could have kept on working as a mason. He could have, totally, a, a, after his heart changed. I mean, the world needs good masons, right? And um, he, he, he wouldn't have been enslaved to it anymore. I mean, he probably would have gone on to do even better work. Um, but uh, he, he certainly would have been better to work with, right? Right? I say that because I, I don't want you to think you know, that the only worthwhile work is full-time ministry. That was, that was Roland's calling. But whatever work you have been uniquely equipped and are suited to do and the world needs, it's possible to do that same work in two very different ways, for God's glory or for your own. And only one of those ways uh, will have eternal impact. So that's work. So, so pleasure, wisdom, work, they all fail to satisfy. Kind of at the end of our rope here, Right? Uh, and here at the end of the chapter, there's, there's a glimmer of hope. Listen to this. Verse 24. There's nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also, I saw, is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. Did you catch that? Maybe, just maybe, happiness is possible. He says in verse 26, to the one who pleases him. God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy to the one who pleases him. So pleasing God is then the key. It's that simple and that impossible. right? Look at the rest of the verse. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting. Uh-oh, you know, the sinner. <laughs> I don't know about you, but I'm a sinner. And, and if you've been listening so far, you've probably thought of some way, some way that you're making one of these good things, pleasure, wisdom, or work, into a replacement God, an alternate God. And with such things, God is not pleased. So how, how are we ever going to please Him? Through the King who is wiser than Solomon. I'm talking about Jesus. The only way that we sinners are ever going to please God is by grace, through faith, in Jesus Christ. Even Ecclesiastes drives us to him. In Matthew 12, uh, some people were asking Jesus for a sign, for a miraculous sign, and this is what he said. He said, The Queen of the South will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to listen to the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. He was, he was talking about himself. Because when Solomon wrote those, wrote those words, from Ecclesiastes 8 that I mentioned at the beginning, there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. When he wrote that, he had no idea at the depths to which God would go to bring us back to himself. He realize that, that that's what's happening on the cross, right? Solomon's complaint has become our salvation. and And... There was, only, there was only ever one truly righteous man, right? Uh, and it was Jesus. And it, it happened to him according to our wicked deeds so that it could then happen to us uh, according to his righteous deeds. You know, he took our sin and shame on himself so that we could receive his purity and his honor to wear as a gift. He endured it gladly for the joy set before him. And if you believe that, if, if, if that moves you if you trust, not just that Jesus died, you know, but that he died for you, then that changes everything, right? It changes our relationship to pleasure and to wisdom and to work. Because if, if you're in Christ, you have the only happiness that can never be taken away from you. You have, the, you have the gaze of the Father saying, this is my beloved son, this is my beloved daughter in whom I am well pleased. And, and this is the opposite of life that's lived merely under the sun. It's, it's the new horizon that we need, right? It's the... It's, um, if you get this, like I said, it changes your perspective on these good things. So, uh, real briefly, how our relationship to pleasure changes. We look to Christ through earthly pleasures. We enjoy them, reflecting thanks to God who gives them and enjoying them in the ways that He designed them. Uh, 1 Corinthians 10, you know, for the earth is the Lord and the fullness thereof. And this, and this passage wraps up. So, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, Do all to the glory of God. You can read that whole chapter for kind of more on pleasure. It's it's good stuff. Paul's saying that it's not so much what you eat as how you eat, right? We can eat like we don't care where our food came from, or we can eat with thanks to the God who gives. Um, Here's how our relationship with wisdom changes. We come to Christ for wisdom. Uh, Colossians 2 says, In him, that's in Christ, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. This means searching the scriptures not not just for you know for wisdom and principles to apply, but looking for Jesus. And, and you can read um, John five, Luke twenty four, uh, to he, uh, to hear Jesus himself saying that very thing, right? Uh, and we also we also realize that the wisdom that comes from God is often counterintuitive. It's often upside down. God's wisdom looks upside down to the wisdom of the world. Um, and if we're wise, it's it's not because of anything superior in us, right? It's because of his grace. Read uh, 1, Corinthians, or, yeah, 1 Corinthians 1 and 2 for more on that. Um, and lastly, our relationship to work changes. So we work not just, not just for our bosses, although most of us have bosses, uh, but we work for Christ. Colossians 3, famous passage. Whatever you do, work heartily, as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. And also, we, we know that the work, work that we do for Him has eternal value. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15, uh, which, which we heard uh, a bit from earlier, that amazing chapter on the resurrection wraps up this way. This is kind of the takeaway of our future resurrection. Paul says, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. And, and with work, I mean, we realize that we can rest, right? Because the work that we need the most, the work of pleasing God, has already been done for us by Jesus himself and is, is given to us as a gift. So what the Father said to Jesus, you know, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased, he now says to every one of you who, uh, who trust him as, as Savior. And so like Solomon said at the end of the book, right? Eat your bread, drink your wine, and rejoice. <laughs> work hard. God has already accepted you. You know, he's already accepted uh, your works and he's done it through the perfect work of Jesus Christ. And this is the gift of God. and it, If that's you, if you're there, just let it sink in and, and, and change you from the inside out. And, and if that's not you, if you're not there yet, think about these things. You know, talk with people you trust. Uh, face the futility of life under the sun. Like Solomon says in chapter 12, remember your creator in the days of your youth. In other words, don't wait until old age to get this right. To get this perspective, don't plow the ground with your chin. Don't learn it the hard way, right? Stop chasing the wind, and embrace the one who's chasing you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Ecclesiastes. Uh, thanks for this passage that exposes the shortcomings uh, in, in in all our pursuits. We are far too easily pleased, Lord, and settling for work. or or wisdom or pleasure when we could have you work in our hearts Lord as only you can because our hearts are restless